0: This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website.
1: Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to this event to mark the launch of a new report on turnaround cities. Um, too often when we gather here at the Resolution Foundation, it feels to me like we are sort of, is our duty to talk about things which are not always going in the right direction, and too often they're going in the wrong direction. Uh, But today, we're going to learn lessons of things getting better. Sun's out. So I hope we can leave you with a degree of optimism about uh, the capacity to improve things on the economic side of the debate. Uh, This morning's event is part of our Economy 2030 inquiry. You may have been to other events, we've had dozens of them here over the last year or so. It's a joint project by the Resolution Foundation and the LSE, with kind support uh, from the Nuffield Foundation, looking at the whole future of the British economic model uh, to 2030 and beyond, uh, from climate change to the future of our cities to inequality and how we generate some productivity growth. Um, Now, in terms of today, I don't probably need to tell anyone who has chosen to come to this event that we can't think about the future of the UK economy overall, uh, whether in terms of productivity, employment, inequality or any key metric, without thinking about the cities that make up our economy. We are uh, predominantly an urban country. We are a service-led economy and those services tend to concentrate heavily in uh, key cities. Um, If you're not thinking about city economic performance, you're not thinking about the economy. Um, So that is kind of one of the reasons why it's so central to our big project, which you'll be hearing a bit more uh, from one of our co-speakers in a a minute. Um, And it's really the case that there is no route to the sort of economy we want to get to with higher growth, reduced inequality, which doesn't involve a, a transformation, really, of the performance of many of our cities outside London. So this is central to uh, work and it is the case, as we'll hear, that even though we've had a, a renaissance in many ways of the performance of a number of city economies, uh, when you look at how a lot of, sort of particularly post industrial cities in England, and this is particularly true of England, less so of Scotland, when you look at how they're performing relative to the national average or indeed relative to their peers and other European economies uh, we are underperforming in lots of ways and that is a major issue both for those places but also for the national economy and our society as a whole Uh, so that is why we're talking about what we're talking about now we are hardly the only country or economy to face these challenges lots of other places have faced similar challenges and so we want to learn from them because lots of places have had some degree of success um, and in a way more than we have so that's what the, the purpose of today is um, we've got a great report, uh, do have a look at it, we all say that, but it's true, this is particularly, I think it's a great, I enjoyed this report for lots of reasons, but it's got, a, it packs a lot in, it's 20 pages long, it's got eight authors, which I think is possibly a record for the, a, a report we've ever published, um, looking at seven cities with six common features and five takeaway lessons for English cities, so, and, and the UK government more, more widely. Um, and it's, it's good to see a sort of set of positive insights brought together in a pithy way. So I'm really, really delighted that the Resolution Foundation can publish this. We didn't write it. We've commissioned it from the people you're about to hear from. So uh, that is what we're doing. Um, and we'll do it in the next hour, basically. Uh, in terms of the people who are taking us through that, we're going to hear first from uh, on the right hand, my right, uh, Philip McCann, who is professor at the Productivity Institute. Uh, and a Chair of Urban and Regional Economics uh, at Manchester Manchester Business School. So thank you, Philip. Uh, Then we're going to hear from Ian Taylor, who is a Research and Policy Associate at Oxford University. I should say that we were going to hear from um, Suzanne Frick, who's a colleague of Ian's. She has, uh, like so many uh, people have experienced, she's on the the wrong side of the the country's childcare crisis this morning. but I gather he's going to join us online to answer questions. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Suzanne, for doing that, and you, uh, we feel your pain. Um, then we're going to hear from Lindsay Judge. Lindsay is research director at the Resolution Foundation and needs all sorts of work here for us, not least leading the city's bit of our 2030 project, particularly working with Manchester. And Birmingham so that Lindsay has uh, always got interesting things to say on on the city's issue and last but definitely not least we're going to hear from Christian on my left Christian Odenau- Dale, uh, who is the European economics editor at The Economist um, and takes a close interest in these issues so that is who you're going to hear from we're going to whiz through them uh, I'm going to turn so Philip's going to kick us off I should say that you probably know the drill by now you can ask questions we want you to ask questions Uh, If you're online, please do it at slido.com. You can do it online if you're in the room. Um, And we will also throw in a poll that we expect you to take part in, uh, just to liven things up. So we'll do that after we've heard from our speakers. But with no further ado, Philip, I'll hand over to you. Thank you.
2: Well firstly, thank you to Gavin and the team here. We, we were really um, delighted and honoured to be invited to, to, to contribute to the Resolution Foundation's uh, work programme here. And the background to this is that we are a very eclectic group of people and we were brought together over the last four or five years by Sir Paul Collier at Oxford and we're different, different backgrounds. Suzanne Frick, Paula Prensel, both PhDs in, in Economic Geography at LSE, myself at Manchester, Ian is a Research Fellow at the Blavatnik School at Oxford, Colin Mayer, Professor of Finance at Oxford, Paul Collier, Professor of Development Economics at Oxford, uh, Vincent Goodstad is here, is the Director of the UK 2070 Commission, along with Bob Kerslake, and Kate, Kate Penny was also working on our projects at Sheffield and now at Manchester. So we, we're a very eclectic group. We also have Jamie Walsh, who's been helping us as well from Oxford as a Research Fellow. We're an eclectic group, and that was intentional. Because the kind of issues we are trying to grapple with can't be solved in a journal paper. And just writing a quick story with some econometrics is not going to even begin to scratch the surface of a lot of these things. And I'm someone who writes papers like that and writes books like that. We're all well aware of this, but the totality and the complexity of these issues is really what we try to get at. So we're a mix of quantitative, qualitative, all different approaches. Our work is funded by the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy. We're very grateful to that. And in terms of our work with the Resolution Foundation, you will see in the report, which of course we're we're delighted that you'll be reading, at the back are a series of references. Each of the cities has a 40 or 50 page case study, which has been published on the website of the Blavatnik School at Oxford. And we encourage you to look at them. That's where the real detail is in each case. We also have one on the case of Leipzig in Germany. Um, It's not included in this because of uh, length reasons and so on but you can also see that one so there's eight case studies that we have and they've all been approached in a common way and I think this is really important each of the cities we chose we didn't think okay let's think of eight cities which are similar or eight cities that we can get data on or eight cities that we could put into a single model and run some model uh, kind of econometrics no they are cities which everybody in their own countries knows firstly we're in a terrible situation and secondly, have turned it around. It doesn't mean that everything is perfect. They're not the best at everything, but they are not the city they were 30 or 40 years ago. That's the starting point. And that's how we came up with this group. We talked to people, and people in those countries said, those cities were in a terrible situation, and what they've done, given their context, is quite remarkable it's still a journey and we must emphasize that these cities are still on journeys but that was our starting point and then we started by doing a combination of desk work detailed work historical stuff and also talking to lots of people in those countries and luckily our team is very multilingual both Paola and Suzanne speak about four languages each I speak a bit of one another and so on so basically you know this is how we've approached this these are the cities we looked at. A series of cities that were hit in the 70s and 80s by enormous deindustrialization shocks, particularly related to things like coal, steel, very, very heavy industry. That's Newcastle, New South Wales, um, Dortmund, Duisburg in Germany, Windsor, Ontario and Pittsburgh. Lille in France as well. So Those are the kind of the big, very heavy industry shocks. And of course, we're familiar with these things in the UK. And then there's a couple of other cases which combine these. Bilbao was one of them in Spain, which is a very traditionally, a very heavy industry, chemicals, oil, as well as coal and steel. And Windsor, Ontario is a very particular case because it was the auto industry that struggled dramatically because of the shocks to Detroit. And it was also very isolated. It was right on the edge of the country. Literally, you're crossing the bridge into Detroit. So there's a series of cities. The other important thing is none of them are capital cities. Why is that important? Because they don't have national governments, in a sense, batting for them. They're not seen as the top priority. Nor, in most cases, except, well, Pittsburgh, by US standards, is not big. It's sort of a medium-sized city. None of them are particularly big. They also don't have that five million capital city kind of cachet that cities like you know, Madrid have, for example. They don't have that. They neither have the super scale, nor do they have the national priority being capital cities. So a lot of the advantages that other cities have had in terms of their turnarounds, they don't have those. But everybody knows locally in those countries tell me about a city that's really been through it over the last, and we're talking 30, 40, 50 years. These are not just in the last few years. These are long-term, deep problems, and these are the cities that came out very, very quickly because their experience and how they've tried to cope with it. So that's how we went about this. And as you see, we looked at a lot of documentary material much of which is in English, but a lot of it is also in their own original languages. That was really important, because you've got to get under the skin of what was happening, particularly in terms of governance decisions. You need to talk to people about what they went through. Why did they decide that? Who made those decisions? What were the organizational arrangements? How did they move that forward? And this is very important, because a lot of what comes out of these discussions is they found ways locally to build coalitions to find ways to overcome fragmentation, where you're repeatedly hit with adverse shocks. We know the work of people like Robert Putnam, for example. People naturally go in on themselves. They become defensive, and therefore, it undermines collaboration. How do you break out of that? How do you find systems of bringing people together? And when I say bringing people together, this is not just a few people. These are large numbers of people in a coordinated, strategic manner that really span from the public sector, the private sector, the civil society, the third sector, including things like art, humanities, all sorts of things, because it's about the vision. How do we make this a place that people want to come and live and to work and persuade investors? Why would you want to invest in this place? So these are are big programmes. None of these places set out with a vision. We're just going to do it. This is stuff which has also been done through trial and error and exper- experimentation. Trying stuff and this is really important. It's the notion of a journey. It's a learning journey that these cities have all gone through and as they find some things that work that starts to galvanise and encourage people. People start to think actually we've, we've tried it and it seems to work. Okay let's try something else. You start to build that trust and confidence which of course in terms of private investors is so important. So the kind of things we've pulled out from these a great deal of evidence, we've tried to synthesise it in this document, it's been, it was actually intellectually great exercise that you asked us to do, this, to synthesise this huge volume of material into 20 pages. So actually from our point of view, working with the Resolution Foundation has helped us to move even quicker forward and we're really, really very, very grateful for that. So some clear takeaways that we think of. Firstly, in all of these cities, these are the these are the common elements you see across all the cities. Firstly, there's a absolute complementarities between urban economic development and economic development per se you've got to make a place attractive for people to want to live and invest there you can't solve this purely by funding r d you've also got to make the streets safe you've got to make the city squares livable for cafes pittsburgh was very early into this all these new cycleways because they knew the kind of people they needed to either attract or retain. Highly educated, a lot of young people wanted to develop their family life and so on. Unless you've got civic spaces, pathways, cycleways, park spaces, all of this became central. And this is a pattern that all of these cities have adopted. You've got to have an urban economic development strategy. Why? Because the places looked horrible. Places which have been hit by decades of deindustrialisation, particularly moving away from heavy industry, we know what they look like and people think, I don't want to live there, or I don't want to invest there. And there's no point of investors being interested in a place if they can't get the people there that they need. And equally, you don't just want to attract people if there's no jobs, no investors are coming forward. So it's a, a comprehensive strategy. All of these eight cities got that very, very early. We have to have a holistic approach. Secondly, comprehensive strategies. You can't do things piecemeal, sporadically, or ad hoc. Of course, one of Bob Kerslake, Lord Bob Kerslake, who was the head of the UK 2070 Commission, that was very much part of our work, always says, in the UK, the biggest problem is pea shooter policies. Lots of randomly scattered pea shooter policies. These cities did the opposite. They put together coordinated (laughs) strategies across all of these dimensions. And that's important in terms of starting to build a programme. You have a vision, you're trying to get somewhere, but you have to start putting all those elements in place because of all the different stakeholders you need to talk to. Not least, the private investors. Why would the private investors want to invest here? That's, that's the, in a sense, the exam question. And it's all that stuff comes together. So, strategic, coordinated. Thirdly, don't build castles in the air. Work on your existing technologies and strengths. Try to build on what you already have, even if it's been... Hit with adverse shocks build on what you've got local and regional leadership is critical it's not about central government central government plays an important role providing and backing but what you can't have is things directed by central government and they were all absolutely clear about that they need the powers and the resources and the toolkits and the legal responsibilities and powers to make their own decisions because unless they can be made locally and driven locally the private investors will never believe it. critical local and re- leadership it's not just about vision it's about having the real tools. Long-term funding which is stable significant extremely important because you're talking about medium long term when you talk to investors once you set a plan you keep going. And then engagement with all different actors different stakeholders different parts of society so that more and more people are contributing to the vision and the plan so long-term funding is essential devolution or devolved decision making whichever kind of language you want to use this was central in all eight places real high level powers to do things properly and to drive those strategies and Critically, what they have that most parts of the UK don't have is have real MISO-level institutions with real power. And in each case, the meso level institutions, whether it was lender or it was states, or autonomous communities, worked with the cities. Bilbao with the Basque Country, Dortmund and Duisburg with the lender, Newcastle with New South Wales. This was a crucial area of coordination to build scale and therefore also credibility. And as I say, looking at these kind of MISO-level institutions are also important around things like dealing with land use. Often very complicated, politically very thorny. You've got to get the land use issues correctly worked out, and otherwise you're not going to get the urban redevelopment strategies. And then also a big push on generating local capital, talking to local banks, you know, getting interest from venture capitalists, angel fund managers from all over the country in what they're doing locally. And in some cases, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Dortmund, for example, were really imaginative in terms of how they tackle these things. In the the Dortmund case, the local Sparkassen and the land bankers, so on, were actually changing their strategies explicitly to to, to fit in with the city. So it was all very transparent what was happening. The final part, which I think is really important here in terms of some lessons. Firstly, the UK has a kind of an extreme pyramid in terms of governance systems. We talk about this in detail in the paper. The missing middle, we need an A-frame, is the MISO-level institutions that are between central government and local government are extremely important in each of these cases. And Most of the UK has no equivalent type of vehicle or institutional. We think that's a very, very important issue. Secondly, devolved decision-making in the UK, when you compare with these cities, is at very, very small levels. Each of these cities benefited from being able to work very locally, but also at a higher MISO level in tandem. You know, we're devolving to very, very small units. In fact, even the biggest units, the West Midlands, Greater Manchester, are right at the bottom of the OECD average for those types of places. And then when you go down from there, you know, proposed mayors and other places, you're talking about devolution to areas which are, you know, appropriate for countries like Austria or whatever. And then also the market-facing role is about economic development. In the UK, you'll see we have a lot of confusion about the roles of some subcentral government. People vote on local security, local services, things like that. That's correct. Those are the citizen-facing roles. There's three of them, according to the OECD. But the market-facing role of sub-central governments is about promoting economic development. That is not a very local issue. That is a mixture of very local and very big. And that's where the MISO-level institutions working together become so important. So these are the kind of c- themes that we've picked up on we're going to keep going with this work and we hope uh you find them instructive thank you, sir. thanks very much
1: uh you covered a huge amount uh in a, a brief period of time so thank you for that um ian do, you're going to follow on from that or do you
0: um, yeah i mean i can say a couple of uh, just, just, I just give us a couple yeah, of words yeah, and I then I we'll move uh, yeah i didn't have much prepared to come standing in but um yeah i worked on the uh, the anglo-saxon case study so uh, pittsburgh Um, and Windsor, Windsor, Ontario, and Newcastle, New South Wales. And uh, I think, uh, as Philip said, um, I think the thing that was really significant and and was common across the three, that they all had quite a lot of idiosyncrasies about them, uh, lots of differences. The thing that was common was they all collaborated across their societies, across the different levels of government. So national, regional, and the city government all worked together. They all exhibited quite strong city mayoral leadership, uh, and they were, help, they were crucial in fashioning that vision, but they needed that support of the Miso-level governance from the province or the state. And the, 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 the tools that they were given by both the central government and by those uh, regional governments were important, not in themselves, but they were important to augment that vision-building process. So they gave them these things that could cohere different stakeholders, like people from business, people from foundations, and the community themselves. So things like tax increment financing or the community improvement plans in um, in Canada. They, in themselves, are relatively small beer, but they were really important uh, and discovered that doing the interviews with the uh, local government officials. They were really important in cohering the vision that originated at the community level. Um, and so, yeah, I'd be interested in, uh, in discussing uh, any aspect of uh, those case studies. Thank
1: you so much, Ian. Um, right. Lindsay, let's move on to you, and you're going to kind of give us a like how how this sounds, if you like, from a English perspective, particularly given the work you've been doing in Manchester and Birmingham.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, on the on the paper for for um, sharing it with us. It's been super super provocative. I think um, for me, I think there were two sort of really big takeaways um, from the from the various case studies. The first one was that um, it takes change on a on a very significant scale to turn cities around. And the second is that that all that action, all that effort needs to be highly coordinated. You can't can't pull one lever and and not pull another. You can't pull one and and have something working against it. And I think those two things are are things we're thinking very hard about through our research work here at Resolution Foundation. So um, just on the first point, let, let me give you some numbers. So last year we published a really interesting piece of work called Bridging the Gap. And that was, um, you know, explicating the problems you've already talked about, Phil, which is um, we have very, very significant productivity gaps between um, London and our second cities in the UK. Um, And they're they're stubborn. They've been there for a long time and and they're not closing um, remotely fast enough. Um, and we did a thought experiment in that in that piece of work, which was very interesting, which was thinking, well, what would it actually take to close the productivity gap between Manchester and London to around about 15% and we lit on that figure because that's the productivity gap between Edinburgh and London currently, and that, that brings us into the same sort of ballpark as, as the gap between Paris and Lyon, so it's a kind of reasonable proposition, and what we found was that you'd need to increase the graduate share by 11 percentage points to do that, you'd need the workforce to grow by half a million in Manchester, and when I say Manchester I mean Greater Manchester, and you'd need capital investment to the tune of tens of billions of pounds. So we are looking at, at, at scale, of change and at, at, at scale of which is, is far from a, a mean feat. Um, So what we're doing currently is we're um, thinking through, well, how do you plausibly achieve um, change of that level and what would it take? And we're working with two cities. We're working with um, Manchester and the city region and with Birmingham and the, and the wider environs. Um, and we're working with officials and representatives there to really kind of, it's a bit of a stretch to call it an action research project, but it's not far off that to kind of bring our analysis to bear with people who are actually kind of delivering on these things on a daily basis. And we chose those two cities for really obvious reasons, that they're, they're very, very big. So Manchester, um, the population of Greater Manchester is 1.7 million and Birmingham and its environs is around about 2.5 million so these are these are big places that potentially have the scales interestingly you said you thought there was more but but in our view they potentially have the scale to really to really kind of make a difference and um, and the real question I think is you know given these cities are at that scale why are they not performing particularly well currently? Why are they not looking like the textbooks say they should look like and, and enjoying the agglomeration benefits that you would expect of places um, at working at that level? And what needs to change to, to kind of get those agglomeration um, a, a benefits working really hard? That's that's the nature of the project. Um, we're about, I don't know, third of the way through, maybe half of the way through, and we have some early findings. So I'll, I'll just give you um, four really quick ones. The first thing um, that we've noted by working with these cities is that um, they've finished their deindustrialization. So they're, they're, if you look at their kind of um, sort of sector picture, they they, um, they they don't look actually that different from London any longer. They they you know they're not they don't have long kind of lingering manufacturing issues. Um, but they, they, what they do have is a long tail of low productivity firms, even in higher productivity cities um, sectors. So um, there's a real issue about why aren't they attracting the kind of super high productivity firms? And one of the reasons we think that that may be the case, of course, is that they, they do have quite, quite a low-skill population in terms of the workforce. And that, I think, is really interesting, and I think echoes with, with what you guys found in, in various places. I think um, Pittsburgh and, and um, Duisburg stood out for me in the, in the um, report. Is that despite both these cities, Manchester and Birmingham, having world-class universities, they really struggled to retain their graduates. And, and I think, again, the, the issue of livability of the cities is, is, is very kind of apropos there. So that's point two. Point three is that um, both cities, Manchester and Birmingham, have have really quite poor public transport. And that means that the workforce really struggles to access the productive centre. And it also, of course, has very negative consequences in terms of reliance or over-reliance on cars and and congestion. And I did think it was really interesting, actually, in in your report that transport didn't seem to come up. Significantly, in the case studies. So if there is more hiding, do, do, do let us know because this is a huge issue for sure in Manchester and Birmingham. And then the final point really is that even when there has been significant transport investment, which of course there has, I mean Manchester's notorious of course because it had the Metrolink, um, which didn't exist 30 years ago. Even with that, um, there's still a large part of the workforce that struggles to access the city centre. So we, we estimate around about 40% of the graduate workforce in Greater Manchester, for example, can't get to the city centre in a kind of reasonable commuting time. So it may have a large population, but its effective population is, is, is far smaller. Um, so I won't, I won't go on too much more about the project. Suffice it to say, your paper's come at a fantastic time for Resolution Foundation. Um, it's really making us think um, hard about how we work with Manchester and Birmingham. Um, um, but we know that we've got to do better because if if we want to see living standards improve, we've got to do something about the productivity of those countries. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you,
1: Lindsay. You. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to this question of scale. And I, was, you, know, you know, Manchester and the West Mids, are they big or are they small? Or yeah, how do we make sense of that? And Christian, you are going to bring us perspective, I hope, clarity. Well, um, well no, uh, there is enough insight, cl- clarity.
4: Exactly. Uh, uh, come I think, on, tell us. I think I think this is. Um, I'm glad that the Resolution Foundation continues to work on this because I feel that sort of the news cycle has sort of swept away this regional inequality bits which are so crucial to uh, both the politics and the economics uh, of, of um, advanced countries and um, I, i'm reading this report i i felt i wanted to read on and wanted to know okay what is what about polish cities what about czech city because they they have had a more even more recent and quite spectacular transformation uh, where there's probably probably also something to learn from um, and to I your to your lessons
1: Seven cities is not enough. Well, yeah. if, you, if, you read, right.
4: if you read through the report, um, that there are there are lessons from each of these cities, which are sort of at the same time provide a common lesson, but also unique to these circumstances. Mm-hmm, and you think like, wow, okay, this is I hadn't thought about this. This is this is really fascinating, um, but. You know, I, I, I could just agree with you, say, <laughs> so, okay, these are these do are that. roughly the lessons I would have I would have uh, drawn from some of these uh, case studies myself. But it's um, I think I, I just want to highlight sort of a, a few that that stood out for me. I think this comprehensive longer term plan and strategy is incredibly important. If you if you think about the rural area in Germany, this is a transformation process. This probably as old as I am, right? But at least 20 years old, right? And so it's a really long-term process. And if you look at the statistics at the beginning of your report, and look at how the unemployment rate of Duisburg and and, and Dortmund has developed in that time, it hasn't much, much at all. So for us in Germany, sorry, I'm German, I should have said this at the beginning. Um, it, these are still cities that are very much, as you rightly said, on this journey. And that that goes to show how much of a how much of a long-term process this is. It Really needs long-term political commitment to this. And of course, having sort of the the German institutional structure in mind, um, devolved political and local uh, decision making, devolved financing, and so forth. I just want to sort of caution a little that these are no panaceas on getting this right. Because if you take the city of Duisburg, for example, you just need sort of a two stops and then you're in Oberhausen, a highly indebted city which still very much struggles with, for historical reasons, right? Uh, With having devolved finances but being effectively bankrupt for for a while. So I think what you said is really important (laughs) that if you have devolved finances, um, you need to make this long-term sustainable even for places that may not be able to fund themselves for for quite some time. Um, And the other thing is, you know, local democracies have been in place in Germany for um, for, for decades and there are places in the rural area where that hasn't worked also because democracies, local democracies can of course also aim for sort of a, did you call that a, a cathedral in the desert, a type of mistakes, right, which then weigh on this city, on the on the finances and so forth. And um, and what was particularly striking is when the when the federal and state governments in Germany tried to solve the problem of, of over indebtedness, for example, of, of municipalities and set up all these various funds, um, uh, it was mostly the rich municipalities who could tap these funds because the state capacity at the local level, which I think you emphasize also in the report, um, just wasn't there anymore. So I think it's really the, the long-term financing and the state capacity at these levels to be able to put something, a longer-term plan and vision into practice, I think is, is, is very important. Um, and the other thing that you, I think is, is very important, or what you said, is sort of build on something you already have, build on your strength. Mm-hmm. You cannot, and, and we, we should be honest, I mean, if, if there is a city which was basically pure industrial and has been in decline, it's really, really hard to turn this around. And I think Eastern, uh, Eastern Germany, again, Leipzig is a, is a case for where that has worked. right? But also because Leipzig is a fairly big city mm-hmm. and there are much smaller cities in, in Eastern Germany that work very industrial places, that have lost half their population and are still struggling to create a new idea of this place. Um, and so, you know, trying to find something to build on, I think, is, is, um, is incredibly important. I also was struck that tra- transport wasn't mentioned more in in these places, uh, because again, the city of Duisburg, um, it's basically a suburb of Düsseldorf, which is a very rich city, and the connection is like a, uh, every ten minutes you get a train yeah. from one to the other. Which doesn't necessarily mean that Duisburg immediately benefits from this, but it creates a sort of a bigger agglomeration effect, which is exactly economically what we want to to nurture this agglomeration effect, and for that. Um, You 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 do need very decent uh, uh, transport links. Um, Maybe let me close with the sort of the biggest turnaround story of them all, and that is Berlin, right? Because I knew you talk about Berlin. (laughs) I've heard you. Because sort of in two thousand and five, I just looked it up this morning. In two thousand and five, Berlin's unemployment rate was still twenty percent, right? I moved there at the time. You could you know get by by bartending two nights a week because flats were all empty, right? And but it was the Uh, the attractiveness of the place which created sort of the mother of all agglomeration effects that we've ever seen and creating later a boom that, I mean, nobody saw that coming, I guess, in in this magnitude but just goes to show that this livability of cities is intimately connected to how they can perform economically and so I was really glad that this was your first lesson because I think that's incredibly important
1: Thank you very much, Christian Um, Lots to learn from Germany, uh, and it's well represented in the paper. Um, now, let us see if the tech does the tech work. The tech does work. Hooray! We've got a poll, which we're going to put to you. Now, this is a bit. I can just hear all of you lots of people saying, "Well, it's all of these things." That's not the right answer. Okay, we're forcing you to choose. So the question is, what would make the biggest difference in helping UK cities to quote turn around their economic performance? <laughs> And the, we've got a list of things, and I guess they're reflecting the fact that there's a narrative, if you like, about each of these. Some people say, unless you have more fiscal capacity, the rest of it's just for the birds. Some people sort of say it's, a, it's really about the powers that are held, particularly at a city regional level. Other people sort of say, let the first thing that's you know, primary of importance is people. And if you can't attract the human capital, then the, the other stuff won't make that much difference. Again, another view... And these are all related. I know, which is like you've got to get the infrastructure there, and then the people will come. And then another view, which uh, I, I hear a lot, and you know we can all feel uh, where it comes from, is unless we have a centre of government which is less mad uh, and, and less imposing, and then none of it will work. So that's that, that's if you like the the trigger of the release for improvement. Which of these are you going to put your place your chip on? Uh, we want you to say. I don't actually know what the answer is going to be, which is uh, which is always interesting. Uh, people are voting, interesting. We will come back to that in a bit. Um, we're going to do some questions now. I'm going to kick this off uh, with a few of my <coughs> own. I've got loads, so I'm going to just keep it short. I think we'll we'll start if we can by just trying to tease out a bit more about some of your case studies briefly, and then we'll let's just take a few minutes on what that means for us here. Okay. Um, And I thought we should maybe start by getting you to unpack a bit of this notion of turnaround because it's quite a broad phrase and there's a um, so I just want to kind of get a sense of like magnitudes, what it covers Uh, if you I don't think you've got a slide showing it but there's a a table near the front of the report which basically is a summary statistical table which tries to bring key facts together and it's really fascinating. Um, uh it, i think i think i think i am right saying three of the cities at the beginning of the like at the turn of the millennium were just above the national average in the country so these are not the, the poorest of the poor places um but four of them were below the national average i think and the improvement varies between some i think pittsburgh stands out actually as going from around the NAF, national average to becoming really quite an affluent city so something you know something's really happened in pittsburgh um the others the improvement is much less stark i think but that could mean lots of things, right? We don't know what the counterfactual is. These are places that could have been on a a downward trajectory and and that was averted. Um, So that's one thing. It's also, I guess, that the other sense is maybe turnaround is partly about what's in the numbers, partly you can't measure everything. Um, and partly it's also just do people have, a, do cities have a sense of their own economic future? Is there a kind of narrative <coughs> that cities tell themselves and the world, to so uh, attract investment amongst other things, about themselves that they didn't used to have, that they now do have? Anyway, help us understand what you mean by turnaround and how significant the change has to be to be counted and so on.
2: Well, I mean, it's a very good question. I think your, your points here are really pertinent. So the numbers that we've provided <clears throat> are from the OECD Metropolitan Database. Now. Those of you who work with these data will know that the standardised data goes back to 2001. The data before that could not be fully standardised. So we, ha- the the shocks to these cities, the real profound adverse shocks, happened prior. They were in. They started in the night in Pittsburgh. started in the 1960s. Ben Chunit's famous papers in the American Ac- Economic Review and so on. But really, it was the 70s and 80s where these shocks really hit, and that was important for us because that's also similar to many of the UK cities, the Sheffields, the Liverpools and so on. It's the 70s and 80s, the recent work of Tony for straight from Patricia Rice, shows that these shocks in the 70s and 80s have had 40-year subsequent effects. So that's why this is important. But the standardised data we've shown you is from the earliest Data, which is completely consistent using the OECD methodology. So it tells you where those cities had got to by 2001. But when you read the case studies, they were already well under, in many cases, these processes had already started, of building turnaround. What is turnaround? It's really the vision and the leadership and the sense that we're all in this together. We're building a plan. We're going on a journey, and we're all going together. That's really what distinguishes these cities. All cities have local politics, and politics locally can be very fractious, and so we know that. But what they've all done is they've developed this sense that we either, you know, we live or die together. We have to do this as a community, independent of the local political arenas, who's in power. We've got to build these long-term plans, and it has to involve everybody. And that's really what we're getting at so it's really about governance in the broadest sense, not just the structure of government and who makes decisions. It's the whole shared ownership. This is our, These are our cities, this is our future, these are our communities and we've got to find a way forward. And the bottom line is also all these cities have been very realistic. It's about why will the private sector want to invest here? Very, very clear about that. We've got to make this a long-term proposition for investors what does that take? And it's all about that trust building, coordination, institutions and this collective sense that this is a this is a movement and we're all in this together and we're going to keep going. Once you set this in train, you don't do this stuff. Of course, in the UK, we're characterised by this. A new minister comes in and everything does this. No, that's not what they've done. They've set in this, this long-term governance agenda and it's all about persuading why would people want to live here and why would people want to invest here? Okay. Um, just, as,
0: people, yeah. just to say very quickly that I think the key word uh, is resilience and that's the main thing that uh, Susanna and I focused on when we were doing our research. It's because as you say the counterfactual is is the thing that we, we don't know. Sure. They were hit with some serious shocks. I mean Newcastle, New South Wales uh, 1989 was hit by an earthquake which caused $4 billion worth of damage uh, and really shook the, the city. And where could they be if they hadn't got on this trajectory of success. It doesn't look amazing in, in the case of Windsor, even while I was doing my research and doing the interviews, there was question marks over the interview participants as to whether Windsor was really a, a turnaround city. Yeah. But in March, 2022, they won the uh, investment to build the biggest uh, battery plant in North America, which uh, you know just showed that all the work that they've been done up to that point was the, be- the foundations of that success and the trajectory
1: that they're going in. Yeah. They're on a journey as yeah. Philip was saying. Um, my anecdote on this is that Sheffield was, uh, where I was where I was spent time in the 90s. Was twin the, the universities had had a sort of relationship with Pittsburgh in the 90s as, because the cities had shared challenges and so on. And we went over and you could see why they were well matched. If you look at what's happened to Sheffield. In that, in the last sort of twenty odd years, compared to what's happened to Pittsburgh, it's it, like it really brings home the fact that getting on a tr- different trajectory, those two cities are in very different places exactly. today, um, and so there's a lot to learn from from them. Now, um, my other question I wanted to ask about the case studies, and just hear briefly from everyone on the panel, is is really I guess about sequencing. It kind of speaks a bit to the, the question in the poll, which is. Um, I guess if you're talking to policymakers, you can't say do lots of things and do them all at once because that's not very helpful because that isn't how things work. And uh, give us your sense from just, just bring out from your case studies and then we'll hear from the other panellists too about the kind of ordering, if you like, um, because not all these places did everything at once. So give us your sense of, you know, all, all your lessons are real, right? They all, they all, they're all based on something. But what kind of order do you think your lessons had to be learned in to get the Turnaround effect uh, that you've seen, and, and ditto in the it kind of in this in our country, like what how do you think we should be thinking about the ordering of those sorts of Is it getting the you know the livability right first in order to attract the people, or does can you not do that if you don't have the infrastructure investment or whatever? So over to you, Philip. To start.
2: Well, the first thing is that the sequencing was different in each of the cases. The important thing is they decided the order of priorities. What did they need to sort first to get that sequencing going? In each case? so you're right, they can't do everything in one go, but you build it by adding and building in. So they've each taken their own decisions, what they, they felt were their priorities, the key ones, and then started to work from there. When I look at the UK and I look at that, my first thing is there needs to be a change in the governance system. And, but we have to do it very carefully. I have a long ATP Some of you may have seen it. It's it's referred to actually in here. Um, I have an 80-page piece published as an occasional paper by the National Institute last year on the fiscal structure of the UK. The fiscal structure of the UK, in a sense, is intentionally or unintentionally designed not to allow devolved decision-making. And we are effectively unique in the OECD the way our system is set up what you do need is profound change and it's interesting we talked about the debt situation in the german some of the german cities for example the same in the us for example but the important about the ability to go to the markets is because the places have to develop the capacity to talk finance properly and that's really important for investors in the case of pittsburgh for example the the investors are convinced because they understand the institutions of the city also have the capability to really think seriously and carefully about f- financial issues, including bond issuances, as well as standard fiscal stuff. So what you get is a literacy, a level of literacy in these proper financial management issues of the sub-central government. So you're not waiting for central government to tell you what to do or reliant on. The opposite, you go with the proposals and that's convincing to the markets. In the UK, in many parts of the UK, that's just simply not evident at the moment. But the scale of the transformation that these cities need and the time scale for me we have to go down that route and it will not be solved simply by devolving taxation taxation devolution is also a double-edged sword it has to be done very carefully and with a proper fiscal stabiliser system that we do not have at the moment so there's lots of other issues but my view is that's where you have to start because these cities all had institutional structures that allowed them to do the right kind of things for the long term
1: right thank you lindsay on the sequencing question how do you know What's your What's your approach in terms of how we how you think about it in terms of the work we're doing with other cities and Well,
3: I, I think what's what's been interesting in the conversations we've we've had with Manchester and Birmingham is um, the tension there is between a kind of sector driven approach, and you talked. Um, about building on your comparative advantages and not building these cathedrals in the desert. So sort of starting from where you are and and trying to think about, you know, what sectors are adjacent to to your existing um, industrial base versus um, interventions that, that kind of would work for any sector, and and if, I mean, of course, you know, we're all kind of interested in where are those kind of frontier and emerging um, sectors, and and we, and we just don't know. So I think the sense we we've got from from both the cities we're working with is um, that you need to be putting in place interventions and and policy actions that that would work in a whole different realm of realm of, of scenarios. Um, And it it sounds, it's very cheesy, because it doesn't really answer your sequencing question, but it really is about sort of lining all of your, your kind of arrows up in the same direction. So, you know, getting your housing strategy Pointing in the right place so that you would be densifying and you would be building the kinds of homes that graduates would want to live in, um, making sure that your universities are are kind of you know producing the graduates that are likely to stick around, making sure your city centre is attractive enough that people are going to want to spend time there. So it doesn't uh, I'm ducking your sequencing question. Yeah, I can question, see you're But, um, but uh, uh, it's it's about making sure that whatever you're doing, it's going in that that direction. Yes. And I think it's that strategic leadership that that comes out so clearly from these case studies.
1: Okay, definitely definitely dodged there, um, Christian.
3: Well,
4: when I saw, saw the poll, I thought, Oh, well, thank God, I don't have to answer that.
1: Um, but I think,
4: so the, the, the issue of, of a turnaround, I think, is for people to see that from this point on, things are looking up, right? And so there are already people living in this city, and as long if they are happy where they are, so this would be sort of the first point for me on the, yep. on the turnaround. And so, um, you know, the livability of the cities... I think would be the first because if you if you don't have the livability of the city, then the people that people live leave. there you know, may not see that this could be turned around because you want to attract people to the city or keep the graduates or keep try to attract investors and so forth. And that begins with, with people wanting to stay where they are. And I think that that's why that's, of course, there are sort of nuances mm-hmm. to this and some other cities may, may have to start with something else. Um, but without it, I struggle to see the rest mm-hmm. falling into place.
1: Yeah. Great. Um, I'm key, so I'm going to say we're going to, have to do some quick, quick ones here and then we're going to take some uh, questions in the room in a minute, if that is OK. There's a question online from someone who hasn't given us their name is saying but, but really about sort of like how a pace, really. How quickly can you make a difference? Now, I know the answer is going to be it's long term because it's clearly long term. You don't turn around the trajectory of a city overnight. But give us, give I guess, give us a spectrum of like, where, where surprised you about what could be achieved in a shorter period compared to other places? Give us a sense of the the best you could hope for.
2: Well, I would think local citizens and also investors who are thinking about places, you would want to see tangible things emerging, whether it's new civic spaces, better transportation. I think five years is a realistic time period it doesn't mean to solve everything, but to start to see that things can happen. And it's also more or less within political cycles where, where voters think, actually, yeah, that, that was done, that's good, we like that, you know, whether it's a new trans, tram system or tram stops or whatever it might be, but things which are tangible. Um, but the kind of things we're talking about are clearly These are multi-decade issues, but you need to see things early on. So again, many of these cities have a kind of a five-year, 10-year, 15-year horizons. And actually clarity about that is very important from an investment point of view. You think about real estate investment or R&D investment, you're looking at 15, 20 years realistically in terms of repayment periods minimum. So actually, if the cities are thinking like that, they're actually quite well aligned with where the investors are. And then that builds confidence. Okay, this is a five-year outcomes. These are 10-year staging posts and so on. This is really important. Anything on information?
3: Um, Well, I'm just thinking about um, some photographs that that one of the team found on the City's project of Salford. And they found a picture of a street in Salford. And I can't remember exactly how long ago, but I'm going to plump for 10 years ago. And, of course, it was a a wasteland. Mm -hmm. And then the, the same city today, and it's... Completely, re- re- just densified buildings, you know, affairs, trees, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and um, and you know that, that kind of I, th- I think I would be very much in, in line with what Christian and, and Phil have said, which is that that visible, appreciable change is is so is so clear, and that and that can happen in a decade. Yeah.
1: So, you can make it, doesn't, we don't have to be saying 30 years. There are no. meaningful things you no. can do. Right. So, the, there's been a number of questions. I, I won't pick one out, but there's a kind of theme about what sort of governance structures are you really talking about for this country? Um, and let me, let me try and put it like this. So, I mean, one of the things that comes out of you, you don't quite put it like this, but one of the things that comes out of your report is just England is just really odd in terms of yeah. governance. We are just, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but you're just saying we're just way too big. Uh, to not be a, in some, whatever the language you use, but basically a more federal country. Yeah. Uh, you don't use the, the, that, the, that F word, but um, that, the, we're just way too big not to be like that. And most of the units, places you look at, have a structure, yeah. either a kind of formal democratic one or kind of an administrative one, which speaks to sort of roughly five million people, which is roughly the size of Scotland, so it, that's why England is different. Um, and we don't have that now we are gr- we are developing uh combined authorities which are a sig- very significant economic unit they're not quite 5 million they're more like half that roughly speaking in in the bigger ones um and we did have uh kind of things called regional development agencies in this country which were roughly the sort of size of the yep. unit that you're talking about they've been gone they're long gone I don't think they're likely to be brought back anytime soon, but who knows. Um, so I suppose give us a sense of where you really put a lot of emphasis on the kind of strategic importance of what you call this meso level, which what I suppose, which doesn't exist. Yeah. It's hard to see it existing across the board anytime soon. So you lean on saying, well, the combined authorities, which are beginning to come through, we need to think about how to get them to work together and have powers to enable them to work together. Just talk to us a bit about that, and is that really a second-best policy? Is that the kind of the best we can have, given the oddness of this country? Or is, actually, is that just, do you think that could really fly, basically? Give us a sense of your thinking on that, and then we'll, take, we'll open it up to the room.
2: Well, I think your first point, it's really important to understand, you're completely correct. The UK is a very, very strange country. In terms of governance, we don't look like any other industrialised country at all. We are a large, effectively a quasi-federal state now with an extremely unbalanced 85%, which is a very much a highly centralised unitary state, very highly centralised by the standards of unitary states. And even with the devolved administrations, we're still one of the most centralised countries in the industrialised world. In addition to that, within England itself, we are ultra-centralised with a fiscal system and a governance system that doesn't look like any other part of the OECD. So we're starting from It's not a blank page, it's a a page that just doesn't look like anything else. And that's very difficult, because we can see what most other places do and how they sort of solve these problems. We have to find ways to do that, but you're also pushing against political things which are not necessarily related to economics at all. And that's a really difficult problem. The two best cases to compare are France um, France and Japan, which were the two very large unitary states along with the UK, But they've been devolving for more than 30 years in two or even three waves, it depends how you define it. But they have moved to these units of around three, four, five million people. That is where they're going. They they have gone in that direction. So they look like much more like the rest of the OECD. We're the odd ones. Um, We have to work with what we've got. The combined authorities are showing success, particularly the big (coughs) ones. So that has to be scaled up in some way. More resources, more powers, more finance, more long term, and also government has to let them go in the sense that let trust them to do it. But the areas we also will need to five and ten years, the kind of time we're talking about, how they work together is extremely important, and that's really particularly the case in the UK because so much of our urbanised areas are very close to each other. We don't, you know, there's only the Ruhrgebiet in Germany that really looks similar. Nowhere else looks like that. So we also have the peculiarity within economics. We talk about shadow effects, really profound shocks where you can basically get strange distortions in geography. That is also a feature of the UK. So we need to think about how city regions can work together to build much more what you might call polycentric scale effects. There's a large literature on this looking at countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, northern Italy, parts of western Germany where you have these characteristics. So we have to think about what governance systems would be able to Put in place to help places also not only scale up but also work together my concern would be the places which are much more isolated so how do you get a more region-wide effect as well yeah. because you also i mean you mentioned the point about duos düsseldorf that's completely correct you also need to wield these big region-wide effects so it's not just manchester it's also much more Larger areas in the northwest of England. How do they plug into what's happening in Manchester? The same in the Leeds kind of West Yorkshire. How do you plug in large areas? And so these are areas that we need a lot of thinking, but we need a lot of action quite quickly. On, I think.
1: Okay, um, I'll, we'll come back to the other panelists in a minute, uh, but time is pressing on. Can we take any questions? In the, have you got a mic? Excellent. Who we've got? Uh, I'm going to go to t- this giant Tom, in the. Yeah, say who you are. And anyone else indicate if want to? Yeah, I've got another
5: Um Hi, I'm Tom Clark. I'm um, a journalist mainly, but I'm working um, a bit at the Resolution Foundation at the moment. Um, the, trying to put together the very interesting points made on tax with the important questions raised on sequencing, that there's a kind of consensus that what we need to do is allow people to make more of their own decisions at a mid-level here on, uh, on, on on tax and spend and ideally on borrowing from what um, Phil was saying as well on the, uh, you know, being able to take their own um, bonds to market. But on both of those you kind of think, well if you've got a rotten tax base at the beginning because the productivity is very low and if you've not got a great image in terms of what investors would think, and you try and took, I don't know, Sheffield bonds to the market right now, people would want quite a high interest rate on that. And so how, how do we get out of those um, two vicious cycles on the, on the fiscal front?
1: Okay, let's just hold, hold that in your head, and we'll, we'll, I think let's just open that up into a slightly broader, how do we think, how should we think about greater fiscal power in a highly, highly unequal country geographically? How do we pull that off and what are the risks? But let's take another, I think it's Vincent.
6: Yeah, yeah, Vincent Good start with the UK 2070 Commission, part of this research. Really fascinated by the responses that have come back. And in some ways, uh, I actually think the question that's been asked is the most central, important question to me. But on top of that, it's the how you uh, I'm thinking the uh, from Lindsay and Christian here, react to what I think is an inherent tension in policy development, raised by what Philip said, that there is a a market scale and there is a personal yeah. scale in terms, Now livability seems to be, requires action at a liveab- at a small scale, but in issues of delivering productivity change, you have market, <laughs> and here we have that, uh, the central dilemma In terms of squaring the circle of how we actually get governance at both those levels uh, in a way that people understand doesn't become complicated um, and actually isn't an excuse for government
1: to say well carry on as we are yeah okay let's let's bring this back to the panel unless anyone in the audience here has got any more burning questions great for the lady yep tell us who you are
6: I can wait till this rounds over. No, to no, give it, um, we'll
1: take. We're running out of time, so give, give us, give us your question now. Great.
6: Um, thank you for your talk today. My question is well, who about. How's you? your name? Oh, my name is Shivani. I work on leveling up at Onward. Great. Uh, my question's about whether, in your research process, when you were choosing your case studies, did you ever come across cities that didn't have as much of a pre-existing economic <laughs> strength, where it would be a lot harder to and a lot more investment oriented and costly to first identify an economic strength and later capitalize on it? And if you did, what is the future for cities like this? Yeah.
1: Okay, so let's look at some hard, tougher cases, if you like. Thank you, good question. So on the, let's start, let, let's try and take the three of those, given the time. So on the fiscal side of things, uh, Christian, maybe start with you. Like, How do you see, I mean, obviously Germany's got a completely different fiscal settlement and so on, it's very different, but... It comes up so much, and there's, you know, there is a really strong view that until there was greater fiscal capacity at a devolved level, particularly in England, you're still always going to have central government messing around in lots of ways, and people are going to be chasing priorities and so on. And that kind of breaks through that. On the other hand, it comes with all sorts of risks in this country. Given, not least, given it comes with risks anywhere, but given where we're starting from in terms of divergent tax bases. It's really hard to get right. How, what's your, as a kind of outsider who knows his inside out? <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's a, well, it's almost
4: well, it's also a bit of a clean slate, right? You can design a sort of fiscal system, maybe Philip in his, his report already has, um, of, of how you do it right. I mean, there is some local capacity to tax, obviously, property, local business taxes, um, or tax rates that you can allow municipalities to, to, to vary. <laughs> But it's crystal clear that there needs to be some form of redistribution scheme, right? Uh, Such that sort of social spending is covered by the high up level. I think you call it meso level, right? Not necessarily the federal level. Um, And that even exposed when you have um, situations where for historical reasons, or policy mistakes or so, a municipality is no longer capable of managing its own finances, that you then have some sort of safety valve and make sure that, again, the MESO level or the federal level steps in, yes, there is yeah. some kind of, of course, there is some kind of governance that then comes on top, um, but allows allows these these to recover. So I think there is there is always going to be a mix between these, and it's a you will never get it right because whenever a new situation pops up the same the countries that have already developed finances like Germany Constantly almost constantly discuss whether this is still the right settlement or whether there needs to be some kind of adjustment
1: yeah, Um Lizzie, Any thoughts on that question, but I want you to pick up Vincent's question, which Which in a way gets back to this question of scale? Um, and it basically so the paper is really kind of clear on saying that there are market-facing activities, and you need a larger scale than we have in this country in terms of conventional local authorities, and you have citizen-facing uh, kind of roles at a local level, and that's and that's much more suitable for local authorities. When you do, when you in your work with Manchester and Birmingham, <coughs> do you? Do you come away thinking actually these are the right sort of scale for the market-facing bit? We have a structure now, so we should be optimistic that we build on it. But we have the right sort of structure. Or do you, or do you kind of worry that actually if some of some of what's been talked about in this paper, they're still not big enough? How do you see that?
3: Um, I mean, certainly, I, our sense with with Birmingham, and Manchester is is that they are big enough, and the and the combined authorities, um, are, you know, are maturing over yeah. time. And and that does go back to the the point about. Um, Fiscal devolution, I think, which is that—I um, mean, I totally agree with what Christian said, which is it's—it's it's really hard to imagine a world when you aren't going to have to have some kind of central central redistribution, central central grant. But of course, we have seen—you know—we've seen the trailblazer um, deals announced yep. in in April this year for. Um, the two cities that we're working with, where you know we're moving away from the pie shooter politics that of, of, um, Bob Kerslake talks about so much, and moving towards a, a kind of more process, a more mature relationship between central government and these combined authorities. You know, a, a relationship where they're providing budget support, and the local authority um, and the combined authorities have the choices about how they deploy that. So I think that um, you know, Phil, you made the point at the beginning that, that, the, that all the case studies you looked at are very much on a journey. I mean, I, I think my, my sense of working with Manchester and Birmingham is that they're you know they're very much on the and they are really at the beginning of that process, but there are institutions there that are, mm. that are filling that meso gap. So whether you know whether they don't quite cut it in terms of scale, um, I'm really interested to hear. But from our from our lived experience perspective of working on them so far, things look quite good.
1: Great, thank you. Now I'm going to bring up, if we can, the poll results before we turn to our, our kind of key speakers to sum up. What so this is the question, and what can we see the results? There you go, you're big on infrastructure. That doesn't totally surprise me. You're less big on freedom from the centre, interesting, uh, uh, but infrastructure wins and sp- structures, which I know is a bit sort of generic, but stronger powers at a city regional level gets a decent showing too. Um, Philip and Ian, uh, let, let's sort of try and, if you can pick up on this fiscal question um, which didn't—it was interesting, actually. Tax and spending capacity scores really lowly in terms of uh, the poll results. Um, but how, uh, nonetheless, how, how do you see that, and where does it fit into the kind of evolution, if you like, of governance uh, at a city regional level? Um, you could have a go answering Vincent's question, if you like, about um, about scale. But also, I think the really good question about. Like what do you do with places where their comparative advantage basically doesn't exist anymore, um, which do exist, Mm. um, and in a way didn't feature so much, I don't think, in the the, the examples you looked at. So if you can try and pull those together, because we are going to be out of time soon. So final comments.
2: Thank you. So, in terms of fiscal types of issues, financial fiscal issues, public finance, the key thing is these places need the resources to do what they need to do. So the Manchesters and the West Midlands, um, they need to have those resources in place for the long term to be able to get on. You've got to have the resources to make the plans meaningful and strategies. Um, But there are different solutions. In the UK, a lot of the discussion is about things like tax increment finance, but the reason is because that's common in the United States and we're rubbish at languages, so we just refer to countries with everything's in English. (laughs) We have no idea what's going on in Sweden or in Japan, no idea at all. Our press have no idea, our special advisers in government have no idea. I mean, You will will have seen this hundreds of times, right? You just don't know. But tax increment financing is is not widely used in the OECD, it's just in certain countries. And that's because in the United States you have taxes at all different levels, states, cities, that's how the system works. Bond issuances are important in the United States and Canada, for example, but they don't exist in Australia. You solve it in different ways, in different contexts. Germany has local bond issuances, but no real local taxation. Australia has no bond issuances, but they have devolved taxation, not through devolved collection, as in the Basque country. That's a different solution. What they have is tax assignment and Germany has tax assignment. Yeah. Centrally collected taxes and then a huge proportion of those taxes, it's around 50% in both countries, simply goes to the to the MISO level institutions. And that's the end of it. Central government has no involvement on what those taxes are used for or how. And this is about the credibility. So there's different solutions in here. I think in the UK what's happened is, because of the US evidence, there's been so much talk about TIFF. And it's not, I mean, Newcastle has used similar models. It's Perfectly valid discussion, but the problem that you raised, Tom, is exactly that kind of system doesn't work when you're trying to help the weaker places when you've got this leveling up challenge, which is so extreme and I don't think a lot of politicians are wearing that because a lot jump onto this very quickly about local taxation and also a lot of journalists and I think no, 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 that's, not, that's the wrong starting point. There are situations in which those types of things will work and I can work and I think the scale related Manchester's West Midlands will be the kind of settings where those things become viable also because they have been building these programs, scale effects, urban transformation, all things we're talking about but there are many places in our own country as there are in these other countries that that simply cannot work, it will make the system worse and I don't know if you noticed but the northern powerhouse had a survey the majority of mayors in the north didn't want devolved taxation for precisely that reason you'll end up in junk bond status long term if you go to markets. so we have to think much more carefully and the nature of the fiscal stabilizer you want a fiscal system that incentivizes local agency but also doesn't end up with them falling precisely into the kind of trap you're thinking about and there are different solutions including things like tax assignment
1: Great, thank you. Um, Someone needs to have a go at this difficult question about places which have lost their comparative advantage. Who's going to do that?
2: Come on. I'm happy to do it if you want me to. But, but you go <sighs> in. You've been talking to these people. Uh, yeah,
0: well, I was, I was, I was going to say about the, 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 the stabilization. Uh, the state, played at uh, the, the state level, MISO level, played an important role in, in all the cases I looked yes, at. So, Pittsburgh had junk bond status before the state of Pennsylvania stepped in and helped them with uh, lots of infrastructure spending and stabilization and that. Um, I, I don't know. In terms of a place that lacks uh, lacks a competitive advantage, I mean, these places did lose the thing that the, their strength, and they had to reinvent themselves. Uh, there was an interesting comparison when I was looking at Pittsburgh with uh, Buffalo, and uh, the Pittsburgh managed to reinvent itself, and Buffalo, uh, Buffalo didn't. Buffalo didn't. Um, and, and I think, uh, yeah, it's it, it's the way in which the actors within. I think the key variable there was the way in which the actors <clears throat> worked in, in the, the municipal level but then also the, the central government were actually involved. It's pretty peculiar in, in the case of um, of Buffalo and, and uh, Pennsylvania because they were within the states, and the states that were with, within allowed the capital to move in, in different ways that was uh, advantageous and disadvantageous. Um, but yeah, I was gonna say about the uh, the transport, uh, you mentioned that transport wasn't mentioned quite a bit, and it was actually quite important in the, in the Anglo-Saxon case studies I looked at. Yeah. Um, so, and so, and it was a bit of a, it, it was a key element. in. in Pittsburgh, uh, they're very proud of the fact that when they were doing all the development, they weren't adding extra car park spaces. Mm-hmm. And there's a really interesting uh, stat about the number of people in, in uh, Pittsburgh who live within 10 minute walk from a uh, key connectivity public transport hub. So that's important. Um, in Australia, in, in Newcastle, New South Wales, it was really interesting that they, uh, they had this really heavy rail that cut off the beach, which was a a key asset to the city now, but when it was an industrial centre, wasn't really important because people weren't really going to the beach because it was so polluted. wasn't seen as a tourist destination. And then they they used the money from the asset recycling, where coincidentally they got 27 times earnings on the sale of the port. So it was actually selling an asset, a state asset, for a competitive price that gets you really good value for money. It was important. And then they redeveloped that heavy uh, rail corridor into a light rail to create connectivity, but then to enable the population to be able to access the beach, which is a key asset. It's that livability piece. Um, and so, yeah, I, I thought that was useful to, to mention that, actually we
1: hadn't touched on that. Great. Thank you, Ian. Um, okay, folks, that is your lot because we are out of time. Uh, let me thank, uh, speakers, really, really great, heartfelt thanks. It's great paper. We're really pleased um, and, and delighted to have published it. So thank you, Philip, Ian, and the re- all the rest of your team. Um, thank you, Lindsay, and Christian, for both being brilliant. Um, thanks to all of you. Everyone is busy, has too much on. So we really appreciate give- you giving us an hour or so of your time. We are going to do lots more in this space. We're, gonna, we're doing the work that lindsay's leading. We're also we're doing work with our friends at Center for Cities. On trying to think about fiscal, you know, what what a fiscal devolution package might look like uh, for the decades ahead. There's a lot more coming out from us on this agenda in the months ahead, so please do watch out for it. Uh, And thanks again for joining us this morning. Goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.